you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at a section of the Lord's Prayer, which is actually a section of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount in the beginning part of the Gospel of Matthew. This is week number two out of four in our short sermon series, A Better Kingdom. You may recall last week we looked at the nature of Jesus' kingdom from John chapter 18, specifically verse 36. And so today we turn to directions on seeking the kingdom, what this kingdom is that we seek. So we're going to focus this morning on verse 10, but I would like to read the entirety of the Lord's Prayer for context. So Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. If you would please give attention. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That in your word we might see your kingdom but even more that we might see the glories of our King, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us this morning, not just to know you better, O Lord, but to be changed, that we might serve you, that we might glorify you, that we might magnify your name. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, last week we did indeed look at the nature of Jesus' kingdom. We saw that it was a spiritual kingdom, and it was not at all like the kingdoms of this world. We also saw that there is a temptation that comes upon us to seek security and hope through power. That's why we're drawn to the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus told us, that his kingdom cannot be stopped. His victory 
is sure. And Jesus told us that at the darkest moment of his life. It was not that Jesus was being an optimist. In the darkest day of his life, he wanted us to know that his kingdom is sure and victorious. So the question before us this morning then is, how do we seek Jesus' kingdom? How do we know when we found it? What does it look like? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught the disciples and us how to pray. He has given to us a model prayer. This prayer is not just words that we are to repeat over and over again, but they are categories of prayer to guide us in our prayer life. There are six petitions or askings for prayer in the Lord's Prayer. And this morning we're going to look at two of them, the second and the third, because two of these six petitions center on the kingdom. Jesus tells us to pray that the kingdom of the Lord would come and that his will would be done. So what kind of kingdom do we seek? I'd like us to see three things about Jesus' kingdom. First, it is a kingdom of grace. A kingdom of grace. Second, it is a kingdom of glory. It is a glorious kingdom. And then third, it is a kingdom of God's will, where the will of God is ever and always done. A kingdom of grace, a kingdom of glory, and a kingdom of God's will. Well, when we see this petition in verse 10, your kingdom come, what do we mean? What is meant by this prayer? Now, we cannot mean by it that we wish God would be king. Because after all, God is already king. We can't make God king. He is the creator of all things. He is before all things. He is eternal and infinite in his being and power. So this can't be a prayer that somehow God would become our king. It's also not a prayer that his providence would rule over all things. Because we know that he does rule through his providence. Our catechism tells us that God's providence is his control, is wise and governing control over all his creatures and all their actions. No exceptions. So what I think this must mean is a prayer that his kingdom would be established, that it would come over us and be finally established in the world. It is a kingdom that we want to see before us. And so the first aspect of this kingdom is that it is a kingdom of grace. And there is a kingdom that the Lord has set up, a kingdom of grace in the hearts of his people. The Lord's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14. It is a kingdom of joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Paul lays this out in Galatians chapter 5. We'll hear more about the fruit of the Spirit that bring joy and peace this evening. But that is a part of the kingdom of God. 
It brings joy and peace. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4 that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. It's a mighty and powerful kingdom. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is within us in Luke chapter 17. This is a kingdom of grace that God is establishing in the hearts of every child of God. Every child of God who has been brought out of darkness. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. He says that we have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and transformed into the kingdom of God's marvelous Son. A kingdom of light, beauty, and holiness. So what does it mean to be brought into this kingdom? Or rather to have this kingdom come upon us and dispel a kingdom of darkness. It means that the darkness of ignorance is cast off from us. Ignorance, like having a veil cast over us that prevents us from seeing the Lord, from seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Darkness of ignorance. And that darkness leads to sin. We sin in the dark. John tells us in his gospel that men love the darkness because their deeds were evil. We sin in the dark. We hope that God won't see it. We hope that our friends and loved ones and neighbors won't see how sinful we are. But we need to cast off the darkness of sin. There's also the darkness of misery that comes upon us. Everything that you know of that is miserable is a result of sin. Disease. Broken relationships. Bad weather. Death. Everything that we experience by way of misery is a result of being trapped in the darkness of sin and the kingdom of Satan. And unless we can be freed from the chains of darkness, we cannot be brought into Jesus' kingdom of light. So how can this happen? Well, the scriptures tell us that it is only a work of God that can do this. Peter tells us in his first letter, the second chapter, that God has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Paul preaches in Acts 26 that God is the one who opens eyes and turns us from darkness to light. Paul should know that. His conversion is a wonderful illustration of this. How as Paul went breathing threats and murders on his way to Damascus, he met the Son of God, the King in all his glory, who literally knocked Saul off his high horse. The scales fell from his eyes, and even though he was blinded by the glory of King Jesus, he was cast out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, of the Son of God. Paul was never the same again. He had different priorities. He had a different message. He was able to bear under all types of suffering because he knew he was serving 
the king. The king had done a work of grace in his heart. Well, how do you know that the kingdom of grace is set up in your heart? How do you know that the kingdom of God has come, that your prayer has been answered? I think first and foremost, it is by experiencing the grace of faith. It is by believing in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the work that He has accomplished in His life and death and resurrection. To pay the penalty for your sin so that you might be freed from it and become a child of God and dwell in eternal fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you have faith, if you believe, if you trust Jesus... The kingdom of grace has come upon you. We also can see it by having the grace of love. Because when a sinner is changed by Jesus, when he puts his trust in him and says, I cannot do this, King Jesus, you must have the victory over self and sin. Then the Lord our God brings his kingdom of grace with a great outpouring of love. We love, the Bible tells us, because He first loved us. The one who has been changed by grace is filled with love. Love for the church, love for God, love for neighbor, love for the lost. That's how you know the kingdom of grace is upon you. Thirdly, you can know that the kingdom of grace has come upon you by opposing sin. Because when the kingdom of grace comes upon us and Jesus is our king, we hate what Jesus hates. We serve his royal banner. And that means we must fight our sin, tooth and nail, to drive it out from us, to not give in to temptation, to set up barriers to protect us from sin, to pray that the Lord would send his spirit to study and memorize the scriptures so that we might have a ready word at a time of temptation. We know the kingdom is set up in us by the grace of faith, the grace of love, and opposition to sin. And then finally, we know because we give ourselves to obedience. We desire to please the king. We seek our orders from him. We go on our tasks that he has assigned to us. He is our king. Now, a word of warning here. Do not seek perfection. Perfection is not required to have the kingdom of grace come upon you. Weakness in grace is not absence of grace. The smallest movements of grace in your life show that the spirit of God is at work. Instead, we are to go to God to pray this prayer and to ask him to set up the kingdom of grace in us. To give us the means of grace that we need. That his kingdom would flourish in our hearts. Now, what does that mean? It means attending worship. Worshiping the Lord your God with your fellow believers singing his praises, offering up your prayers, knowing that you are a part of the body of Christ. It means listening to the word preached, being affected 
by the powerful living Word that God has given that seems foolishness to the world, but is the power of Jesus Christ unto salvation. It means being committed to prayer. Going into your closet, as Jesus says, and praying in secret to your Lord, opening your heart before Him, confessing your sins, adoring Him in all His being, asking for the things that you need to follow Him. It means clinging to God's promises. Well, the kingdom of grace begins in the heart. But it also must be established in the world. That's what this text tells us as well. The kingdoms of the world all work in one way. From the top down. From the authority filtering down. From the king, from the president, from our leaders. Not so the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God works from the bottom up. It works in individual hearts that God reaches and gathers them together as a part of his people. You may ask yourself, how could I possibly change the world? I'm not king of the world. I won't even ever be president. In fact, I doubt I would ever even be mayor of Katy. How could I possibly change the world? Do you want to change the world? Then I'll tell you how. Love your neighbor. Share the gospel. Follow Jesus. That is the kingdom way. Don't wait for authorities to tell you what to do. Give your heart, mind, and soul to Jesus Christ in service. That is how the world will be changed. You see, our prayer is not only that the grace of God would be in us, but that it would spread throughout all of the world. Only the gospel can solve our most difficult problems. And we have problems in the world, don't we? We have problems with racism. We have problems with poverty, with hate, with war, with ignorance. And the solution for all of these is the kingdom of God marching forward in the hearts of his people, spread throughout the world, changing the world. Because as the gospel goes forward, as the kingdom of grace advances, people are changed, societies are changed, and ultimately the world will be changed. Think for just a moment about Europe before and after the spread of the gospel. Before the spread of the gospel, our European ancestors worshipped trees and rocks. And they fought and killed each other. They had no mercy on women and children. There was no healing. There was no education. It was a land of barbarism. But when the gospel came, Europe was changed. Now, Surely it was not made perfect. There were wars. There were unjust leaders. But the continent was changed entirely. They brought the gospel throughout the world. And one of the effects of this is something that we take completely for granted today. The idea of human rights. 
Human rights did not exist before the church brought the gospel to the world. It was considered perfectly normal to kill infants and children, to maim women, to enslave neighbors and neighboring tribes. But because of the advancement of the gospel, now everyone takes for granted human rights. Slavery does exist in this world because sin and wickedness does, but it is universally thought wicked. How do you think that happened? Did someone just wake up one moment and say, I think we should get rid of the slaves? No, it was the gospel. All of the early abolitionists were Christians. They said, this is against God's word. We shouldn't treat people made in the image of God in this way. And that has gotten rid in the main of slavery. Everything that we know that is of peace is a result of the kingdom of grace advancing in our world. So what does it look like to see the kingdom of grace come into the world? Our catechism is, I think, helpful here. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 191 says, it looks like the gospel being propagated throughout the world. Now, that's, that's a big word, isn't it? Propagated. Not one we use every day. But what it means is that the gospel is dispensed, dispersed, like scattered seed, to use a Bible illustration, throughout all of the world. That's how we know the kingdom of grace has come upon us. And the church is established, and the barriers that were between Jew and Greek, racism, have been broken down by Jesus Christ. The church is the only organism in which all are welcome. No matter where they come from, no matter what language they speak, no matter what they look like, the church is universal. There is no other entity like the church. And the church grows in spite of its attacks against it. Have you noticed that? That the more the church is attacked, the more it grows. Look at China. Look at India. Look at the Sudan. As the church is attacked, the kingdom goes forward. Why? Because attacks cannot defeat the kingdom of God. And the church's people are built up to love and to serve others. That's what the advancing kingdom of grace looks like. Now, how does this happen? What is the plan for this? Well, this is where the petition that we have in front of us is important. Often we want to take upon ourselves the work of establishing the kingdom. Recently, there has been a renewal of the so-called social gospel. The social gospel came about as a movement in the late 19th century. In the late 19th century, the world seemed to be in great shape. There had been no major wars for some time. And things were getting better and better. Medicines were curing more diseases. There was more and more availability of food. And the world seemed to be about to turn the corner, if you will. And so, those who pervade a social gospel thought that the job of the church was to finish off the job. To do that last little finishing touch that, that God had left to them. Now, ironically, today, most people think the world is in horrible shape. 
that everything is bad. But they have the same solution. That the church is somehow to fix the world for God. I don't know if he's too busy to be involved with it or if it's too unimportant for him. But rather than preach and teach the gospel and the glories of Jesus, we're to set up mechanisms and entities and organizations to advance causes in the world. There's been a call to work and to legislate. What is missing in all of that? The petition itself. The petition doesn't say, Lord, we will bring your kingdom. It doesn't say, Lord, help us to bring about your kingdom. No, it's a prayer. May your kingdom come. Or let your kingdom come. Bring your kingdom to us, Lord. Because only God can bring about his kingdom. It is his gospel. It is his grace. It is his kingdom. He is the one who will cause his word to speed ahead. Are you praying daily that the kingdom of grace will be established? Do you pray for revival? Do you read as much in the prophets and in the accounts of revival in history as you do political news stories? As God's people, we are to beg God to bring down his kingdom so that we may see it established in the world. Well, there is a second aspect to the kingdom. There is not only a kingdom of grace, there is a kingdom of glory. And there is an important saying that grace is glory begun and glory is grace consummated. And so this is but one kingdom, but another aspect of it. And when we pray, we ask not just that we would see grace in the midst of our strife and sin. No, we pray that God would drive out all sin and that he would show us his glory. What we seek is a kingdom where the Lord's final victory is seen, where his promises are fulfilled and where the kingdom of Satan is destroyed. We long not just to see hope and beauty, but to have freedom from all evil. What do you really want in life? Think of everything that troubles you. All of that is done away with in the kingdom of glory. We will be free from all miseries and effects of the fall. No longer will we work with pain. We will be free from all sorrow. The Lord tells us in Revelation 21 that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We will be freed from all temptation. We will be finally beyond its reach. We'll be free from doubt, confusion. In the kingdom of glory, we will know even as we are known. And this will happen with the destruction of Satan's kingdom. The old enemy, the accuser, will be cast out. The great tempter will tempt no more. And everything that Satan rejoices in, hate, murder, lying, divisions, pain, and disease, will be no more. This is not political ebb and flow. We're not wondering if things will be reversed in the midterm elections. No, 
It is the end of sin and wickedness. It is all that we could ever hope for. But the establishment of God's glory is not just freedom from evil. No, there is far more. The reason that evil is defeated is because God's glory is established. God's glory is the fulfillment of all that is good. When we pray that the kingdom of God would come down, we are praying that all that is good would be seen. Now, what does that glory mean for us? It means that we will be in the presence of God and that we will see him face to face. It means we will know him just as the angels in heaven know him, according to Matthew 18. We will see the glorified Jesus Christ with our own eyes. What could be more blessed than that? And we will have sweet communion with the glorified saints who have gone before us, who are with us, and who will come after us. All of this is all we could ever long for. There is nothing more that you could ask, or nothing more you could even think to ask for. When the kingdom of glory is established, there is nothing else to desire. Your joy will be incomprehensible. You cannot even imagine it now. You will have rest and peace beyond anything you could describe. Stop for a moment and think about your perfect vacation. Now, it's got to be individualized, because for some of us, that's sitting in a beach chair on the beach, relaxing, listening to the sounds of the waves. For others of us, it's being up in the mountains, hiking and smelling the fresh air. For some of us, especially the young ones, it's Disney World. And every ride has no line at all. Isn't that wonderful? Now, as perfect as that vacation is that you can imagine, you do realize that it's going to come to an end. That you've got to leave the beach and go back to work. That you've got to leave Thunder Mountain and take a test next week at school. But not so the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God goes on forever and ever. It is never going to end. The blessedness that we have is eternal. And this kingdom of glory is greater than any other kingdom we could imagine. All other kingdoms are raised by men and are flawed. You know, it's said... And I tend to agree that the United States Constitution is the most perfect political document that has ever been written. That it gives us freedoms. And it gives us a representative republic and rights. But you know that the drafters of the Constitution thought it was so imperfect, before they finished it, they changed it. The first ten amendments came before they even finished it. And they built into the Constitution a process for changing it because they knew it was flawed because it was human. Not so the kingdom of God's glory. The architect of God's kingdom is God. He is the one who laid the foundation. It excels all other kingdoms in holiness and peace. It alone has true unity where everyone is equal and they are committed to each other.
In this kingdom alone is eternal, abiding peace. You need to know that this kingdom is certain. God has promised it. Jesus has paid the price for its purchase. Jesus is praying right now that you, that you would be with Him there in the kingdom of glory. And the Spirit has been sent as a down payment of this kingdom. Are you praying right now for the kingdom of glory to come? Are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Don't be distracted by the baubles of the world. There is no kingdom like God's kingdom. Well, in verse 10, the third petition follows the second. And that's our third point, that this is a kingdom of God's will. This third petition is related to the second, and it actually ends our verse. When God's kingdom comes, His will will be done at all times. One of the ways that the kingdom of God is displayed is through this. We know that the will of God is being done. And so we might first ask, isn't God's will always done? God is, after all, God. Who can stop God? The Bible tells us in Psalm 115, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And the angel told Mary, Nothing is impossible with God. So how can we pray that God's will would be done if He's God? What we have to understand is there are different expressions for the will of God. There is the secret will of God or His decrees, which are always done. God is never surprised. He can never be defeated. He... Everything that he decrees will come to pass. But there is another sense in which we speak of God's will. We call it his revealed will. What God reveals to us in his word. And this is primarily found in his law, his commandments. But it is also found when God tells us what he takes pleasure in and what he hates. His revealed will is the rule for our actions. To be obeyed. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible sets this distinction clearly. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of the law. God has given us his revealed will so that we would know him and know the nature of his kingdom. And this is a great blessing for us. We don't have to guess at what the kingdom is like. Do you find yourself trying to do that at election day? Wondering what the administration or the rule of a certain politician would look like? You know the saying, how do you know when a politician is lying? His lips are moving. Right? They try to be vague. They try not to tell us what they're going to do. They don't want to be pinned down. Not so God. God gives us clear promises in his word. Do you want to know what kind of kingdom it is that you're seeking? Study God's word. He's told you in his word. In his kingdom, all of God's will will be done forever. 
At this present time, every time his commands are disobeyed, his revealed will is violated. But this will not always be so. There will come a day when the will of God will reign supreme in every instance. Now, it's not just that God's will would be done. But this prayer also tells us where and how it would be done. Do you see that? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we seek is God's kingdom here on earth, established in the lives of his people. We pray that earth would be like heaven in all of its perfections. And so this prayer begins with you and me. It's not primarily about changing the world to fit us. It's about changing our desires so that we would be fit for the kingdom. God has given to you his will. Are you doing it? Do you desire to do his will? Do you strain and make every effort? That's what this prayer is all about. So what does it mean to do the will of God as it is in heaven? I think it would help us in this instance to think about how the angels serve God. We are to do the will of God regularly. Not just when it suits us. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to do something when you want to do it? But when you're not totally committed to doing it, how hard it is and how many excuses you make for not doing it and why you have every right not to do it. We are to do the will of God entirely, not leaving parts undone. Are you like me and you have certain jobs around the house where they have certain parts that you leave till last, hoping that somehow someone else will do it? Or people won't care if you leave it undone. You push it off to the end. That's not how we approach the will of God. Because God is not concerned primarily with our effectiveness. He's concerned with our hearts. He wants us to long and desire to do His will. We do the will of God sincerely, without pretense or self-serving motives. It is easy to imagine doing the will of God when it benefits us most. How easy is it to pray when you are in great present need? How easy is it to speak graciously to someone when you want something? To put on an act or an air, pretense. We are to do the will of God without pretense and we are to do it willingly without murmuring or complaining. Now this is Simple. I shouldn't even have to give you an illustration of this if you are a parent. All you have to imagine is you have asked your child to do something, and as they walk away, you hear, <laughs> under their breath. Get back here. No, I don't want you just to do it. I want you to do it and be happy about doing it. There's no grumbling or moaning or complaining, right? What makes us think we can look that way with God? That God would accept our obedience while we mutter under our breath how unjust he is and disparage his holy name. We should never grow weary of doing his will. 
But instead, we should be looking as believers for opportunities to do His will. We should be looking for opportunities to be gracious, to be compassionate, to be kind, to be generous. We should be looking for ways to show that we are child, children of the King. But it's not just what we seek. It's how we seek it. We seek the kingdom of God and we lay aside anything that gets in our way. We seek it because we want the glory of God to be seen in all of the world. Take care not to miss the kingdom. Don't be spiritually lazy. Don't imagine that entrance into the kingdom is far easier than it is. Don't delay or put off the kingdom for some future time. Do not presume that you deserve the kingdom and that God will hand it to you in spite of your seeking it. Do not focus on the world and its pleasures. Seek instead the kingdom of God because the king is worthy. The king is whom we serve. Let's pray.